0: try to figure out how to actually do what you need to do. Um, and if, particularly if you get to the frustration point where nothing seems to be done, seize the moment, take action. Uh, it's not that scary.
1: That's the voice of today's guest, Dale Hoff, a retired Seattle resident who's using his skills to tackle part of the homelessness crisis facing our city. I'm Jeff Shulman, a marketing professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. This fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast has been devoted to the issue of homelessness, a crisis affecting everyone living in and connected to this city. Through seven episodes, you've heard from city council members, King County Executive Dow Constantine, former Washington State Attorney General Rob McKenna, academic experts, activists, and individuals who have experienced or are experiencing homelessness. The episodes have brought a broad range of perspectives into one place for a constructive dialogue. Today's episode is something special. As every one of us faces challenges of varying degrees of scale, today's episode features an inspiring story about how one person can make a world of difference. My interview with Dale Hoff, conducted earlier this year, offers lessons not only for those seeking improvement in the homelessness crisis, but those seeking to influence change at any level. Today also features an in-depth interview with a person who has had a significant impact on the economic growth of Seattle. That's Craig Kinzer. What I think this will do is show that the private sector can come up with solutions. In today's episode, Kinzer previews a big idea that he thinks can fundamentally transform how housing gets built for average workers in Seattle. The extended conversation also touches upon the controversial public subsidy for the ballpark that is home to Seattle's Major League Baseball team. The interview gives you insight into important decisions facing our region's government. Combined, these two interviews represent two of the many examples of Seattle residents who think creatively about how to tackle challenges. They also offer insight into the process of finding where your unique skill set can be applied to make a difference. To get started, join me as I sit down with Dale Hoff. I am here with Dale Hoff, a retired builder and concerned member of the community uh, who's concerned about homelessness and is doing something uh, to help address the challenge. Dale, thank you very much for joining me today. You bet. Thank you for having me. Why don't you just start, tell me a little bit about yourself. Okay,
0: I am a retired builder, I'm a member of a, a local church uh, that has done a lot with the homeless and has had me, I've been volunteering there and had me kind of looking at that situation in a lot of different ways. Um, I have am part of a neighborhood, Bryant neighborhood, uh, a, a group of people, very creative people who have come together and discussed you know, what we might do about homeless, but we never really came up with anything. So... I just struggled with that a bit, and out of frustration, just decided I could do something and started hearing about uh, tiny homes as a possibility. I'd done uh, Habitat for Humanity-type programs, and I went to OMAC and worked on houses as a volunteer building the ones that burnt down the fires the last few summers, and uh, decided to do something kind of homegrown, grassroots, on my own here. So I launched a program called Building Dreams with the intent, my personal intent, to simply get one person
1: off the street once a month for a year. All right, so you've started building dreams, trying to get one person off the street per month per year. Um, That'd be a total of 12. Total of 12 people <laughs> doing the
0: math. <laughs> or if there's two per house, total
1: of 24. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm excited to hear about building dreams and how what the first step was and what the next step is. Before we get to the details of building dreams, Let's get to that feeling. What was frustrating you? What, what inspired you to do something as an individual?
0: I think it was spawned somewhat by the jungle, if you know what I mean by that, that the city was grappling with back, I think, two years ago. And our neighbors brought it up in a conversation and said, what can we do about something like the jungle, which was the encampment under the freeway? And they were sweeping it and so forth. And so some cre- creative ideas were kicked around. And so... Um, and so we started looking at the homeless situation. We, I involved them in some stuff at my church that was already dealing with uh, shelter youth and feeding programs and so forth for the homeless. And uh, But nothing became, as I said, and it was just more of frustration, like, well, there's got to be something that at least I can do on some level. And a friend of mine had done a a tiny home through a church organization themselves and told me about it, and I said, well, how'd that go, and kind of directed me towards a pathway to ask some questions. And so I, I talked to Lehigh, Low Income, Low Income Housing Institute of Seattle here, and found out what their program was. And asked them, well, what if I, a builder, gathered some former builder friends together, retired now, and throw together some houses? Do you have a flow for them, a place where they can go? Or are we going to just have them on our driveways wondering what to do with them? You know, And they said, sure. And so I decided to design a program And all of a sudden, people started hearing about it and uh, started asking me about it. Could they help out? Could they participate? And it just kind of blossomed from there. And uh, having building skills, it's just pure fun for me to build these houses. Uh, But what came out of it was just this uh, excitement by all the people, like, I can do something for the homeless as well, not knowing what to do. I can do something by participating in this building dreams thing. And they were
1: just excited about that as, as I was. Here we are in July of 2018. How many tiny houses has Building Dreams? Pretty much right on target.
0: I have uh, number eight is sitting on a church parking lot up in northeast Seattle, uh, about two-thirds of the way done and should be delivered by August 1st. Actually, that'll put me almost a month ahead, although I did start a little earlier than I anticipated. I was going to start January 1st. But again, I'll tell that part of the story, too. I thought, how am I going to make this happen? I'll need funds. And so I sent out a pretty large broadcast to friends, neighbors, relatives, distant friends about what I hoped to do. And I thought, well, if I can get enough money for three of them, which would be about roughly they run $2,500 per material is what I had been told. And I did some estimating and thought that was relatively accurate. Um, I thought if I could get $7,500, I would get going on that the first quarter. And uh, within two weeks, I had $20,000, enough to do was probably five or six of them, and I just took off. And so we started in mid-December. I started in mid-December, and uh, the first one was done with pretty local neighbor, neighbors and friends. And, and then after that, it got picked up on Como News right. and people who I had no, never met before, started calling, emailing me, texting me and asking if they could participate and that it just branched out from there. So now we're at number eight, like I say, and I've got four to go
1: and uh, should meet my target easily before December, if not even a couple months earlier. And did you form like an official nonprofit right out of the gate or did you test out your your idea a little bit beforehand?
0: So I started as a you know just a grassroots program, not sure where it was going to go, and um, did not want to turn it into a business because I am retired. Um, I want to do it, I did it officially enough by having any money that came in go through my church as a mission project for our church. That way, there's a, a chance for a tax deduction for the people that donate, and I don't look suspicious at all as far as taking money and blah blah blah. blah. All the money goes simply for the materials, and so I'd simply send receipts to the church saying I need to be reimbursed for materials I bought for the little tiny
1: homes. Um, so that's about as official as I made it. So you have this idea, you have a skill, you're a builder, you see a problem, which is the homeless on the streets, and you personally, to get get together with friends, with your church, and start solving this problem one person at a time. What emotions are you, did you get when you built and placed your first tiny home? Initially, it was, wow, I am going to do something.
0: This house is actually going to serve somebody. So that felt great. Uh, as people came and worked with me, they would say to me – uh, uh, two, three, four of them had said this, you know, this is fantastic that you are doing this. It's fantastic that you are doing something for the homeless, but just as important, it's fantastic that you're setting up a program where I can do something for the homeless because I don't know what to do. And so this is good in that sense. That made me feel even even better yet, you know. And then also being a builder, I just love to build. And the people just who came said, this is fun. This is really fun. I really like building. And so it gave them a building experience as well. One of my goals, objectives in doing this also was to do them uh, as visible as possible. The first one was just kind of explore how they would go together with people on my driveway. But after that, I wanted to get them out in the community somewhere. So I started reaching out to parking lots, Uh, you know, church lots, uh, neighbors that had very visible driveways, mines on the back alley. Other people had them right in the front of their house and so forth. And the purpose there was to get people who walked by to say, what's going on here? What's this about? And and then you could talk about not just my program, but about the homeless. And
1: it's amazing how much conversation has gone on just by seeing the little houses. And how many people have you engaged in Giving that the opportunity to feel like they're chipping away at a seemingly large problem. I love that question. I love to talk about it. There have been over over a hundred people
0: that have donated money to the cause in various forms, so as low as twenty five dollars up to five thousand dollars. There have been over seventy people that have actually come on and swung a hammer, painted a paintbrush, or something like that. In a lot of ways, and then there are people that you know do things such as um, make curtains. Uh, bring satchels with personal hygiene type things in them and so forth they just want to be a part of it in so many different ways there's been three elementary schools that i also encourage them to kind of consider how they might do it so there's a uh, uh, elementary what elementary school in everett a good friend of mine teaches there and had her class talk about homeless first graders talk about homelessness and then do artwork which when then we frame and put in the house and I've had it done by um, my son teaches down at the EEU here on campus, and uh, they did something similar, as did the children's school at my church. So there's
1: a lot of ways to involve even kids in this this issue of homelessness and learn about it and support it. Tell me about these tiny homes that your Building Dreams organization or group of people are, are building. How many square feet? Are they really livable for 2500 bucks? Can you create a livable space? Okay, so the Tiny Homes program that I have designed merges
0: with Lehigh, which has the tiny home villages if you know that. There are, there are eight sites around or actually now they're up to nine or even ten sites around the city and there are certain limitations on the houses to, to allow them to be built that way and so they're less than 120 square feet so really the They get down to 100 to 110 square feet, plus a little bit of roof overhang. So they're small, very small. And really, they are just a shelter. They're a bedroom. I put in them a a platform bed and a little table that are mounted to the building. But otherwise, they're just the floor plan of 8 by 12, a little bit of changes here and there. On site, they have bathrooms, they have showers, and they have a kitchen facility. So that's kind of the amenities that are outside of the little tiny home, if you will. Um, So yeah, they're livable in the sense that it brings somebody from the streets, or in a tent, up off the ground, another 24 inches, uh, onto a platform bed, another 18 inches, um, secured, the lock on door on the door, and and dry. And that's three big components I think are very important to helping the homeless get out of the, shall we say, the muck and mire of rainy Seattle that uh, makes their life a little bit more doable and, and helps them move on down maybe through more into uh, transitional housing. Can they fit their stuff then in
1: 120 square feet?
0: Uh, if you've gone on the sites, you will find – if you go on the sites, you will find that yeah, um, they're, uh, they're cluttered a bit because they're so small, stuff in there. They, they, but they have to keep their things with them. They put them around the outside and so forth. So, But, yeah, as you can imagine, 120 square feet would be hard to live in and have all your things with you that you own. You know, Many of us have
1: basements and um, attics and garages, which they don't have. So, uh, You've built eight tiny homes. You've got resources for four more after the 12, and you, you complete your original goal of one per month for this year of 2018, what what's the future hold for building dreams?
0: Good question. I'm a goal-oriented person, and I targeted my 12. And when that's done, I will have met my goal, and it'll be time to redesign a new goal. And I'm not sure where that'll go. I've, like I say, I've, I've, I've retired. Um, I'm 65 and um, do not want to launch a whole new business, but I do want to keep active and this issue, I don't think, will be gone when I get done with these tiny homes. Uh, they're not a solution; they're simply a stair step to try to find solutions. Um, so there might be something drawing me. I'd like to see this program move forward, uh, and the city has interest in tiny homes. And uh, Mayor Durkin has said she wants a thousand. This, you know, in her campaigning thing. I'd love that to happen. Um, so it might grow, pass on to somebody else. Uh, it could. I'd like to see it move into some sort of employment-type training, not only for the homeless, but for anybody who wants to learn building skills and also do good social good by by building these things. So I might see if I can't morph it into some sort of employment-type thing for um, people wanting to learn the trades and homeless people that want to actually work on their own homes. But again, it would be self-designed. I have no idea where that's going at this
1: point. Through this experience of bringing over 100 people together to each not only feel like they can make a difference, but actually making a difference, and then building eight and and potentially 12. Throughout this whole experience, what lesson have you learned or what can listeners take away from your experience launching and and successfully doing Building Dreams? What I hope people take from this and what I'm taking from this is if you have a
0: passion, if you have a concern, if you have an issue, uh, talk about it, but act on your words. You know, at some point, try to figure out how to actually do what you need to do. Um, and if, particularly if you get to the frustration point where nothing seems to be done, seize the moment. Take action. Uh, it's not that scary. You know, People might challenge you. I, yes, I do get challenged quite a bit, I would say, um, for this program. Um, but I get a lot of support, too. And so this one appeared to be a vision whose time had come. People really wanted to support it. I mean, I I have had... Uh, people say, well, that's a wrong way to approach it. You know, you're just making, enabling people to live uh, in these tiny homes. They are going to expect them and so forth. But uh, I don't buy into that. I still think this is an important value that we need to kind of work on.
1: Is there any lesson that somebody could take away from the process that you've been able to take an idea into a reality and into making a difference, whether they want to make that difference chipping away at homelessness or if there's other differences that they would want to make? Is there anything they could learn from your journey? Uh, it speaks to creativity, I think. And I think a lot of
0: us, a lot of people deny their creativity and they just wait for somebody to kind of pull them out into the the river to kind of do something creative. And I think I'd like to encourage anybody who has a thought or idea to, to dabble with it and, and and try to create what they think might work. It'll redirect, it'll shift, it'll change, and you'll find things that kind of make your idea or your program work. But uh again I didn't know exactly where this was going you know whether it would really be viable to try to do 12 of these things and so forth but every week something new came up that made me you know that this is this is moving forward and it pulls you along and it's just that's the pure fun of it any concluding thoughts I I guess through this process of talking with you I realize you know or I want to share exactly how enjoyable this has been for me you you know many people say oh my gosh You're working hard at that, and it's like, you know, I hardly notice that I'm working. It's just pure reward to know that you're creating something that is going to be put to a pretty beneficial use uh, at no sense of profit or gain for myself. It's just, this is fun, all my friends enjoy building with me, and it's going to such a good uh, cause. Um, and at this point, I'd like to also talk a shout out to a lot of the people that I contacted former building associates like, uh, Dunn Lumber, uh, Windows Doors and More, uh, Allied Roofing Supply, Rotta Paint, uh, they all, when I approached them and said, well, here's what I think I'm going to do, what I'm doing, would you like to be a part of that? They jumped all over it too and and gave me reduction in price. Oh, Frank's Windows and, Frank's Doors also, um, gave me reduction in price or free products and, uh, And uh, continue to ask me whenever I drop in, how's it going? They're really excited about that. So it's not just individuals, but it's also corporate people that say, this is a good program. This is worth doing. Dale, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective. You're welcome very much, and thank you for having me.
1: My next interview offers another story of someone working to develop solutions to big challenges. In my interview with Craig Kinzer, we touch upon workforce housing, homelessness, and public subsidies for major sports franchises. But before we get to the interview, I'm excited to share news about my latest project. I've teamed up with filmmaker Stephen Fong to produce a feature-length documentary, On the Brink. We had a work-in-progress screening recently, and the response was phenomenal. If you want to get invited to future private preview screenings before we premiere to the public, please like and follow the Facebook page at facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. That's facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. Check out the trailer and see why people are buzzing about On the Brink. Now, for a fascinating conversation about the future of Seattle, join me as I sit down With Craig Kinzer. I am here at Kinzer Partners with Mr. Kinzer himself, Craig Kinzer. Craig, thank you for joining me today. This focus of the season is homelessness. And with homelessness, there's a whole host of issues that have been raised, uh, whether it's affordable housing, where and how does it get built in this city, um, taxation, and how does the city and the region deploy its resources. And given that you have played a major role in what the city looks like today and are playing a role in what the city is going to look like tomorrow. I'm excited to get your perspective on these. Before we get your perspective, can you share with the listeners what impact you've had on the city? What are some of the ways that they might recognize your work with Kinsler Partners?
2: Well, we are uh, a real estate firm that represents many of the large corporations here in Seattle, both private, public sector, nonprofit. And as a result, we have a uh, significant influence on what is built and where and how uh, companies grow here in the region. For example, we assembled all of the land uh, and moved the businesses for Safeco Field. Uh, We were able to get the city, you know, their high-rise city hall at 50 cents on the dollar. We moved Russell Investments up here from Tacoma. We did research, uh, the, excuse me, the, uh, assemblage for children's research center here downtown, which is a very large development. You're seeing some of it continue today. Certainly Starbucks headquarters, you know, thinking of taking an old warehouse and instead of tearing it down, turning it into, uh, you know, something really special, right? A 1.5 million square foot center of gravity for Starbucks, you know, a growing company. So, uh, Things like that or the Gates Foundation, you know, talking the city into selling about a third of the Seattle Center for their campus development, which again is continuing. So throughout the city, we've been involved in where and how growth occurs. Most recently, uh, we represented a company called F5 and uh, worked with them to both lease and acquire a portion of what is now called F5 Tower downtown, right? We're a, a big fan of density downtown urban density. Uh, And as a result, we attempt to help companies grow in a way that is sustainable and prevents, you know, sprawl in our region and also uh, grow in a way that uh, helps uh, our infrastructure
1: support all of the growth. So some people on this podcast have raised the concern that almost Seattle, they they feel it's too crowded. So why do you like density instead of maybe sharing this growth with some of the neighboring cities or states?
2: Well, I don't think it's mutually exclusive, uh, but what occurs is there's a center of gravity and a certain critical mass that occurs where employers want to be in downtown Seattle because That's where the employees want to be, right? There's a certain level of energy, again, back to the critical mass of restaurants and bars and, you know, generally the energy. It's one of the reasons that Russell Investments moved up here from Tacoma. I love the idea, and we represent a number of companies where we're consulting with them to put satellite facilities along light rail so as to have some distribution of the growth Uh, which is also putting employees closer to affordable housing. Um, And that's why I was a big proponent of expanding light rail. But when it comes to the city, there's going to be a certain level of growth no matter what you do. And so you want to be smart about how you do it. For example, North Seattle is beginning to fill up. When I say North Seattle, South Lake Union. It's been a, a great success, although I think there was a missed opportunity in two ways. We could have had a commons, kind of a central park, and we we missed that. That was unfortunate. But we also could have had greater density here in South Lake Union. Uh, The buildings could have been higher and and we would not have lost the character, but we would have had more density. And the reason I support density is it provides for lower cost of infrastructure per person. And that's what you want. That's how you create better transportation, as you create greater density. Going south, we now have the opportunity to either uh, slow growth or grow like LA and Dallas and other cities, which I don't think are good examples in many respects, or we can grow smartly with high density right in the core, where you have a combination of commercial office and housing. And other mixed-use retail, so that you have a walkable city, and people don't need a car. Right? That's what makes it uh, better from the standpoint of not just transportation, but all the services. The key element to me in in making that work is to have a variety of housing options, which goes to the point that you're trying to you know discuss, whether it's homelessness, you know, low-income housing, thirty percent. Right, AMI, sixty percent AMI, eighty uh, percent workforce housing, all the way to market rate housing. How do you supply all of that variety in the core? Because right now, what happens is you see land more on the peripheral areas, the standard you know five over two construction um, with low density areas, and you get back to that commuter issue, and you also run out of land as you probably. Um, have researched, or others have said here on your show, that Seattle, if you look at all the land, it is disproportionately used for single, uh, um, uh, single unit housing, right? Uh, and these neighborhoods are very NIMBY-oriented, right? They don't want density there. Uh, and as a result, you need to put density somewhere. And where should that go? It should go in the downtown core. And so as we upzone, which I think we should, you know, going south, one of the things that we've been working on, it goes back to your original question of, you know how do we, here at Kinzer Partners, try and be a positive um, uh, force within Seattle, within the community? Uh, we've been working for two years on a project to put workforce housing in the downtown core where land is very expensive and normally would not be able to support workforce housing. It has to be market rate, right? It just doesn't pencil. We think we've figured a formula by which we can get workforce housing, meaning somewhere between 80 and 150 percent AMI, 50 to a $90,000 salary. Uh, You know, your teachers, policemen, you know, grad students, you know, you can go through the list. This kind of housing, high quality, just like, you know, any market rate housing, except we can charge 50 percent of market rent without any government subsidy and any private subsidy. And it's a somewhat complicated process, and we're, we're close to uh, publishing a report, and we have some sites in which uh, we think that might work. If you can have the private sector lead the housing boom for affordable housing, you win. If it's constantly led by the government and taxation, it's just not sustainable. There is never going to be enough Subsidy to make it happen. You need to figure a way to create housing options uh, that are sustainable economically without
1: subsidy. And that's one of the things we've been trying to do. How and why should the private sector lead on this when it's really attractive? You know, if you build. Uh, something for an Amazon employee, you could get quite a bit more dollars in rent than if you build for a Seattle Public Schools employee. So how does the private sector lead and why? Yeah, well,
2: this is part of the secret sauce of the formula. So if you take a mixed-use high-rise and you have housing in it, now, and the housing is not at the top, it's, it's down below, which brings in some complications that we've had to work out as to different floor plates. Uh, but what happens is the housing is set up such that it's an increase in FAR and density and perhaps height, so the developer is not having to subsidize. They're actually getting um, the same amount of buildable area except that this condominium interest, if you will, in this section of housing, and it could be anywhere, we're modeling somewhere between 100 and say 500,000 square feet, is dedicated to this workforce housing Run by a, a B corporation, which is a kind of a for profit that doesn't make a profit, we want to stay again away from um, government subsidies, so it's not a nonprofit but what happens is that entity's sole mission is to have workforce housing in perpetuity. What happens is the corporations that are in the that mixed use facility up above they're given first rights to about half of those units, and what people don 't realize is not everybody is a hundred twenty thousand, hundred fifty thousand dollar Amazon programmer, right? There's a lot of people that work in these tech firms that make fifty to, you know, ninety thousand dollars, and so these corporations, which ultimately become tenants or owners, they would love to have housing that is available to all of their employees. Uh, they would still be restricted. And that the employees have to show a tax return. They have to be within that you know, certain income bracket. But the beauty of that is that companies can now locate downtown and, as, and they don't have to have workers who are commuting from way outside the region, which puts more stress on our public transportation or brings more cars into downtown.
1: This sounds visionary, yet uh, private entities to build workforce housing and, and help people stay off the streets in some way, the people on the margin. What are the roadblocks? Why hasn't this happened yet?
2: Yeah, it's I, a great question, because as I was putting this together uh, against, uh, a couple years ago and started to formulate it, it seemed like, well, geez, this is an obvious solution. It must be done somewhere else. And the idea actually came to me when I was touring... Um, Asia, and I was in some of the major cities, Hong Kong, Shanghai, looking at how they do density, right? And, uh, and they do it much better than we do. Uh, but I could not find any other examples of what we had put together. And as I look at it now, and I have a number of people who are working on it with me, I'm finding that it's actually a little bit more um, inventive than I had given it credit for. Uh, if you look at all the components, no single component is rocket science, but the combination of all of them is what brings that uh, rent down to something that works. And I think once we publish this, and again, we've kind of talked a little bit to some landowners and and some major anchor corporate tenants, and they're pretty much in favor of this. I mean, I I can see a lot of optimism around it, and I'm anxious to put it out and have it... um, challenged right that's the best way to see if something is going to work so the answer to your question is i i really don't know why somebody else hasn't done it i doesn't for me it doesn't seem as innovative so innovative that no one would have thought of it but so far we can't find anybody uh that has done it and as i show it i've showed it probably to about 30 or 40 people in the industry no one's been able to break the model so far right um and at some point in time you know maybe in a couple months we could have another one i you know sh- Kind of lay out the entire list uh, of how it works one other thing i might mention is that you know these corporations that are now and and the ceos they don't mind being in a mixed-use facility 10 20 years ago you know i i want to be in a facility it's just a commercial office building we had a bank client that you know wanted everybody in suits that's gone, right? Uh, you're seeing tech firms now. You're seeing casual dressing all downtown. And so having a mixed-use facility works as long as it's high quality. If you end up building something that becomes the projects, right, which is, becomes uh, not well-maintained, that's problematic. And, we've, again, we've fixed that problem. And so CEOs saying, hey, if I'm in a building where I'm with other residential uses that are separate, separated nicely but have a lot more robust retail because of the um, fact that we have both you know, residential and office. And we're also saving energy because you take the heat from the office and you transfer it into the residence for night and, and in the morning. So we have lower energy costs. We're working with McKinstry on that. When you put all this together, the CEOs are saying, wow, this is great stuff. And I now have a recruiting advantage because I can offer some of this housing to you know, some of my employees. And at the end of the day, a lot of CEOs, especially here in Seattle, and I think it started with, with Howard Schultz uh, at Starbucks 20 years ago, really think, how do I not just make money, but how do I make my community a better place? And if we can have diversified housing and solve some of these problems, uh, the CEOs are all for it. They'll do what they can to support it. I think they don't want to rely on government. They don't want to rely on a head tax, right? They want to help come up with a solution. And here's a way to do it. And again, the CEOs, they're not subsidizing anything. They're just putting their employees in a building which
1: encompasses this um, unique aspect of housing. So let's talk about the government for a second. You said you don't need any subsidies, but do you need any rule changes? Yes,
2: yes. There will be some zoning changes that allow for uh, some increased height or FAR um, because you're looking at buildings that are going to be the size minimum of what you see here with Amazon building or maybe even a Columbia Center. And so you do get uh, uh, some advantages as a developer for taking on this condominium interest, which does add some complication. You're not paying anything more. It doesn't cost you more because all of the extra cost uh, is taken care of by the um, uh, uh, ongoing rent and, and purchase of this condominium interest within your building. But there's some brain damage anytime you have multiple uses, right? So what do you get in return? Well, perhaps you get an alley vacation without being held hostage by the city, right? Um, maybe some of the uh, setbacks or issues associated with your podium, you know, things that are not life safety oriented, but are more design oriented. There's some uh, more flexibility because the city knows that, hey, we're getting thousands of these units we need. We gladly will essentially give you some what's what what I would consider a little bit of an up zone kind of like HALA but HALA unfortunately is only kind of hitting on the margins I think that's only going to make a dent and it was also structured so that in some cases it doesn't make sense in some cases it does each property is different so you don't really know whether HALA is going to have the kind of effect you'd like it to because the council in setting it up wanted to be really careful that they didn't give a windfall to developers and I think that's a mistake. Not so much that you want to give them windfalls, but you definitely want to use the power of the private sector to take you where you want to go. Um, and HALA is okay. I, I'm you know, fine with it. But I don't think uh, it's going to accomplish what this other project we have um, will ultimately accomplish.
1: So you're working on a project that's going to put corporations... Uh, and housing in one place. And you don't want government subsidies, but you do want uh, them to allow some rules to be changed uh, to make this possible. Correct. Speak to the listener who ultimately can support or oppose this and and, and demand from their city council members. Speak to them as, as to why you think it, it's in their best interest. In particular, uh, it seems right now there there's a large body of the Seattle population that's kind of distrustful of corporations and distrustful of developers, and you're going to put both of them in one project asking the government to get out of the way?
2: You know, that's a great question, and and I think one of the benefits that comes along with this is showing the public that the private sector and business can be part of the solution, wants to be part of the solution. You're absolutely right in that there's a general distrust, not just of corporations— but of government, you know, the government body too. I mean, there's, you know, the establishment, so to speak. And what I think this will do is show that the private sector can come up with solutions. So let's look at this solution. We know the benefits of it. We're, we're bringing uh, affordable housing into the downtown core. We're, we're creating a place where there isn't gentrification. We're keeping the soul of Seattle because you have a wide range of, of uh, people that are living downtown. But somebody's gonna say, What's the catch? They're gonna say, What's the catch? The only catch is this you will have more density downtown. So, for example, uh, I'm thinking of some of the sites that work, you know, because there are certain places where a high rise is appropriate here downtown. You might have a building that instead of being 50 stories is 75 stories. Somebody might say that's too tall, that's too much. Uh, You're going to block the sun or there's going to be these canyons. You hear that. Um, But the fact of the matter is that if you go and stand right next to Columbia Center and some of those high rises right there and and Key Tower, you have a very difficult time on the corner telling which building is higher, right? Um, And so this added density uh, really is a positive thing there will be and as there always is in seattle you know people who don't like the growth they don't like change and they're going to say you are making the city too big it's going to become like a new york and somehow they have a negative vision of new york and so they're thinking we're moving in a in a bad direction i'd say no actually we're moving in a good direction because by creating this housing not only are we helping a huge uh, portion of the population but we're also stopping that sprawl, that can be very, I think, damaging to the beautiful area that we have here. That's why so many people come here, with the water, the mountains, you know, all the space. Uh, when you, you know, very quickly you get into the national forests here. You just want to make sure that that growth management system works, and that you have these urban villages where the density is. But let's face it, the real engine in the state of Washington is King County and the city of Seattle. I mean, that's really where the economic activity happens. So let's make sure that that's where we appropriately have the density and allow the neighborhoods to continue to enjoy,
1: you know, some of their lower density. As I mentioned at the top of this conversation, uh, as it relates to homelessness, we've got a lot of issues that often come up, one of them being affordable housing. We just covered that. Uh, Another being kind of the, the regional deployment of financial resources. And recently, the King County Council decided to give hundred over $100 million to uh, the Mariners for Safeco renovations. And you both helped prepare Safeco as a place that the Mariners are now. Uh, and you came out recently to, to say maybe that's not such a good idea. Care to comment on that subsidy and how you think the, the region should deploy its resources?
2: I understand that right now, affordable housing and especially homelessness is just a, you know, uh, incredibly important and hot-button issue for everybody. Um, and the amount of resources, both from the standpoint of people and time and money, are s- coming together. Uh, we've been, the, for example, the pro bono broker, broker for Mary's Place for quite a while. And so we understand that need. We We see it from the standpoint of, the homelessness transitional housing and all all of that and i'm fairly excited to see a, what i think is a positive um trend line and I, I think there are some solutions that are coming to force you know one commercial i would give is for plymouth housing which i think has done an excellent job and most people don't i think aren't aware of the fact that they've been housing uh that segment of the homeless that are the most difficult where they're they're never probably going to enter into you know the productive you know mainstream uh, of society, but they've been able to house them and and give them services for maybe you know over a thousand which might be you know maybe we have three to four thousand of those type of individuals so I can see solutions coming i'm somewhat optimistic your question though deals with what about money today and I was not so much against Some of the money going to the Mariners, I was more against the way in which it was being characterized as uh, money that was going to help maintain a county-owned or state-owned asset, Safeco Field. It's just not true. Uh, The money was going to the Mariners, and they will use it however they deem best. It might say it's going for maintenance, but that's already covered in other areas of the lease and, and revenue. So the money that they would receive, it's fungible, it just frees up other money that they're gonna use, hopefully, to bring us a World Series. And I'm all for that. I'm a huge sports fan, and I think that as much as homelessness is important, no doubt, um, and they're gonna get, if you look at the amount of tourism tax, they're gonna get something like six, 700 million, so we didn't ignore that issue at all. But having something like the Seahawks and the Super Bowl, the amount of community civic pride that comes from that, the fact that I don't care, you know, what religion, what race, what gender, how much you make, we all love our Seahawks, right? And so it brings the community together. And I think that's why sports are so important. What I was not a big fan of is don't give public money and then just have it go away. If in any case, the Mariners either sell the team or take cash out of the team, well, you've got to give that public money back. As long as the money is all going to, to make sure that we have the best fan experience as possible, I'm okay with that. But once you start taking cash out of the team or once you sell the team, all that public money should go back. That's what I was really you know pushing for. And I was not happy with the way that both the PFD and the Mariners were communicating this. They were, I think, fooling the public into thinking that, well, it's just going to maintain an asset of, this, of, you know, of the state. Not true. Uh, and they were also saying, and we're charging, you know, the Mariners are paying double rent. Absolutely a false statement. Uh, first, they're not paying double, double rent. Um, if you calculate it appropriately... They're paying the same or less rent. But even, even the fact that you talk about the word rent is, is another layer of fooling the public. The rent is maybe 20 basis points on the value of the stadium. Fair market rent would be 4 to 5%. So maybe we're paying a million, million and a half, depending on how you calculate it. Well, market rent would be 30 to $40 million. What are the Mariners doing because they're not paying rent? they have a legal obligation to improve and maintain the stadium up to first class standards or now in the new lease, and even a somewhat stronger, more clear definition of how they have to keep up the stadium. So we're saying, you get a free stadium with free rent, but you have to keep it up. And that's a fair deal. But once the Mariners say, oh, we need money to maintain the stadium, they're being disingenuous. And when the council votes, to give money for them to maintain the stadium and kind of pretend that the Mariners are paying rent, well, in, re- in reality, all of the money from the ballpark outside of the team operations, like the taxes, you know, the, even the rent they pay to the PFD, other events, you go through the list, all of that goes back to the Mariners to maintain the stadium. That's kind of the deal, right? And so I'm okay with some money going to a professional sports team. What I'm not a big fan of is a misrepresentation of the facts that when the public starts to pay attention, when all of a sudden people begin to look at this, they go, well, wait a minute. This isn't true. You're not telling us the real story. All that does is increase the mistrust that the citizens have in the establishment or in our elected officials. And as a result of that, you get people voting for a very populous city council, a city council that perhaps isn't as balanced as it should be, that sees business as bad. And I don't necessarily blame the council members because that's what gets them elected, especially with district elections. They go out and say, business is bad, vote for me. That's the wrong way to look at it. So for me, if you're proud of the deal that you just cut with the Mariners, then just just give the public the facts and say why don't kind of do the smoke and mirrors thing and mislead the public because when they discover that they've been misled, which I think is what's happened, you've just made it much worse for many, many other issues that we have in our region.
1: So we've gotten to talk about public subsidies, affordable housing, and uh, the role of business to play in kind of making a a better future for Seattle. Any concluding thoughts? I think some of the... um, success around the
2: country has been taking people who are homeless and giving them units to live in, right? Where they have an opportunity to get back on their feet and get back into the working world. And, and the uh, housing that I was talking about would marble a few of those in there. So you, I think there's ways to help, you know, the homeless. It's a very difficult problem to solve because it's more about why are they homeless? It's not just that they're homeless, right? But as you, as you chip away at the problem I think you also have to look at all of the population that are still working and living here in Seattle, and you have to think of them too. And so when you have uh, a very liberal policy associated with homeless people on public property, out on the streets or on the sidewalks, I think that actually hurts the ability to get a lot of the region behind the fix. Um, I look at Bellevue. They, they're a little bit more, um, I would say, strict on that area. And, and I think you can be both empathetic and strict. It doesn't, it's not like um, uh, something where it's binary. I think there's a way in which Seattle can start to make citizens feel more comfortable and say, no, you can't actually have a tent here. We will find you a location. But you can't have it here. So when people get upset and they say, here's all this money going to the homelessness, a lot of people wonder, well, where is the fix? And they want to see something. Well, in some ways, those who are advocates for the homeless actually like them to be out there because it keeps it front and center. But we'll never, I won't say never, but it'll be a long time until we completely solve the issue. So to say that for the next 10 or 20 years, we're going to have tents out on the sidewalks, I don't think that's a good policy. It certainly doesn't help our tourism. It doesn't help the safety. Probably is not good as far as, you know, from the standpoint of uh, policing and things of that nature. While still being empathetic and trying to help people get into services, let's clean up the city in a way that Supports these people who, I mean, I think one way to look at it is therefore the grace of God go I right. You have to be empathetic, but don't go so far that you begin to make the people who can be part of the solution go. Well, wait a minute, this isn't working for me. You want six hundred million dollars of tourism tax, but yet you're you're not going to make it make me feel safe walking to the ballpark because I've got to walk through these tents and we all have to be very honest and, and know that some of those homelessness are there because of mental issues or, or drugs or other problems that can make it dangerous. Now, many of them are not that way. They're just down on their luck. But let's somehow satisfy both constituencies at the same time. Uh, and I think that there's some examples of other cities who've, who've done a good job of that balance. And so I want to see that balance.
1: Craig, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time and perspective and coming back for a second time on Seattle Growth Podcast. Uh, Thank you very much. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Do you know someone doing something unique to address homelessness? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. I'm eager to hear about how the community is rising to the challenge. Have an opinion to share about this episode or other episodes? I'd love to hear from you on Twitter or on the Seattle Growth Podcast Facebook page. Please also take a moment to like and follow the page for my upcoming feature-length documentary, On the Brink. The movie shares an important part of Seattle's history in a story of hope and determination. Visit facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm. That's facebook.com slash onthebrinkfilm, where you can see a trailer and get updates on where and when you could see the film that people are buzzing about. In the next episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, I sit down with world-renowned poverty expert, UW professor Scott
2: Allard. I think it's really important for us to challenge the stereotypes about poverty in America.
1: The episode also features interviews with those experiencing poverty here in Seattle. I hope you'll join me for the next episode. And in the meantime, I'm Jeff Schulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the fifth season of Seattle Growth Podcast.